you know, we sing the mighty power of God and having seen the power of God in lives to change lives, see the power of God in the Grand Canyon and all over creation, it just uh, brings praise to my heart, my mind. And I love that song. And How Great Thou Art is one of the songs we sing in the depths of the canyon. In fact, we have the, the narrowest part in the canyon. Uh, the canyon is only 66 feet wide at that point, and it has tremendous acoustics. We stop and we sing. We read Genesis 1 and we sing, and it's uh, just amazing. And a couple of years ago, when uh, one of my good friends was on the trip with us and I had asked him to read the passage, uh, we had just had a little bit of rain, and then he started reading Genesis 1, and suddenly a waterfall appeared on the wall of the canyon around us, just as he was reading. The rain had dropped enough that it caused it to happen, and we sat there and just marveled at the grace of God, the power of God, and the joy we have in him in salvation. It's a privilege to be here to speak at the time of ordaining TJ. Uh, we both served in the region of Asia. I served in Bangladesh. We have to get the right pronunciation, Pastor. It's not Bangladesh. <laughs> Bangladesh in Bengali means land of frogs. <laughs> Bangladesh is the land of the Bangla people and Bangla language, Bengali. And I want to begin there uh, as we speak today. Uh, you can turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. But I want to kind of set the stage by telling you about a very special young man who reminds me much of T.J. Back in the early 60s, 1960s, a young family arrived in East Pakistan. That's before it was known as Bangladesh, before the War of Liberation in 1971. This young family, three little children, a husband, Harry, a wife, Nancy. Within three years, actually just one month before my wife and I got married, Harry was stricken and died. June of 1966, leaving behind that wife, Nancy, and three little children. Harry's buried at Malamgat on the hospital grounds there in Bangladesh. And it appears that he may have been poisoned by tribal peoples antagonistic to the preaching of the gospel. Harry went to do Bible translation. Harry went to preach the gospel. Harry went to serve, and in the short time he served in Bangladesh, he led one of the tribal chiefs to the Lord. And after his death, many, many more came to the Lord. And that orphaned family, that widowed wife, Nancy, eventually God led back to the United States, and there was another family in the Philippines, the Ebersol family. And there, Russ's wife died of cancer, leaving five little children and Russ. A number of years later, Russ, Ebersol, Nancy Gehring 
met, and eventually God led them to marry and to join their families with a combined family of eight children, and they continued to serve the Lord. But that one little Garing boy who watched his father die in Bangladesh was the young man who volunteered to come to Bangladesh to teach our children to be their teacher. And during that time, we got to love Harold, Harold Ebersol, son of Harry and Nancy Gehring. And Harold went with my boys and I on, trek, on a trek in Nepal. And we spent a lot of time praying together, talking together. And when he left Bangladesh after teaching our children for three years, he said, you know what? I believe God's leading me to come back and finish what my, my father started. He returned to the States, went to seminary, studied hard, found a wonderful wife, Sean, who was daughter to a couple that Barb and I were in candidate school together with at ABWE, and they went as missionaries to South Africa. Harold and Sean married, returned to Bangladesh, and Harold began working among the tribal peoples his father had ministered to. And eventually, he sat on our translation team and helped out in Bible translation. And when we left the field, Harold was taking charge of all the Bible translation ministries among the tribal peoples and was directing the tribal Bible school. Why do I tell you about this? Because right now, this minute, in Bangladesh, Harold is struggling to stay physically alive. He and Sean returned to the United States about four years ago because Harold had cancer. And he's undergone a lot of therapy. And finally, they reached the painful conclusion that they would never be able to return to Bangladesh as missionaries again. So he and Sean got on a plane shortly after Thanksgiving and returned to Bangladesh to pack up their home that had waited for them for four years to say their goodbyes. But when it came time for them to return to the States in mid-December, Harold tested positive for COVID and was not allowed to fly. Sean returned to the States alone to care for her mother who is in hospice care. But this week, we got word that Harold is not just testing positive for COVID, he's struggling with it and is not doing well. The doctors said, Sean, you need to come now. Sean should be arriving in Bangladesh. She should have arrived actually last night and she should be on her way to the hospital at Malangat in southern Bangladesh to join Harold and be with him. I'm telling you this because it's an example of a young man with a hand of God upon him like the hand of God is upon TJ and upon Karen and their family. A man who's dedicated his life to serve the Lord in Asia a man who's now 
perhaps going to die in the same land, in the same hospital where his father died in 1966. We've been praying that he would stay alive till Sean gets there so she can be by his side. But I want you to know about him. I want you to be praying for him and for Sean today and for their two sons, Luke and Caleb, and their families. This is a rough time, and these things happen. And yet, Harold and Sean would both tell you, don't weep for them, don't grieve for them, just rejoice in how God has used Harold to carry on the work of his father, Harry, in Bangladesh, and if be, to give his life for the Lord there, because he went back because of his love of the people, to be certain to tell them goodbye and to give them that privilege. And I'll tell you, he's a much beloved man among the Bangladeshis and the churches in Bangladesh. So pray, will you, for them? Take that time today, take that time in the days ahead to pray for them and to thank God for calling such a dedicated servant. And as we turn to the scriptures now in Ezra chapter 7, we're going to see another dedicated servant. A servant similar to Harold Ebersol, a servant similar to T.J. Smith, and that the hand of God was on him, and he was willing to go anywhere at any time, even if it involved a dangerous and long journey, and to serve among a people where there was conflict, to serve where there would be problems, to be able to dedicate his life to the Word of God, its teaching, and even its translation. Before I start reading, let's pray, and then we will begin the text here of Ezra 7. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for men like Ezra here in the scriptures, whose hand, who had your hand upon him. Men like Ezra who went forth to serve you, no matter what would be demanded, no matter where you would take them. And Lord, I thank you for Harold Ebersol and Sean, his wife, and I pray that you will strengthen them for this severe trial that they're in the midst of, not knowing if he will survive, not knowing if he will ever leave Bangladesh again, not knowing if he'll return home, not knowing if his boys and their families, his grandchildren will see him again, but knowing that they're rejoicing that no matter what the cost, it doesn't even measure up to all that the Savior has done for us. And that they serve with joy and gladness. And I pray for TJ and for Karen and their family, that as you use them and as you have used them already in India for years, in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you'll just bring a great encouragement and a courage of mind and soul to serve you with all that they have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra chapter 7. Now after this, strange way to begin, right? What you don't realize unless you studied it well is that 
between the end of chapter 6 and this statement in chapter 7, 58 years have passed. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, had issued a decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. He issued that decree in 538 B.C. Two years later, the Jews who had returned to, to Jerusalem began the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years prior. As they began the rebuilding, they received opposition from people in the land. And after two years, the building of the temple was halted because of the opposition. But 20 years later, they appealed again to the Persian Empire and they were allowed to restart the building of the temple in 520 BC. And four years later, they dedicated the new temple in 516 BC. And you can read about it there in chapter 6 and how that those who remembered the temple of Solomon wept because it, they saw a temple that didn't have the same glory. But they also wept for joy because once again the temple was built and the services to the Lord had begun. And now 58 years after that Passover celebration at that newly built temple, we enter the story with Ezra. Now, after this, 58 years later, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah. Azariah is a long form of the name Ezra. So Ezra bears a name that his ancestors here also bear. Son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, Zadok, the head of the Zadokites, the priests in the line of Aaron who are promised to remain as priests in the millennial kingdom yet to come. The son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, there's that name again, a favorite in the line. Son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas. Phinehas, Numbers chapter 25, that brave priest that when adultery and when blatant pagan actions disobedient to God, impure in his sight were taking place, he picked up the spear, ran into the tent, and speared the man and woman engaged in intercourse in an ungodly way in the eyes of the people. Phineas was that priest of God who said, I'm going to give my life if need be to protect the sanctity of God's people and be obedient to his word. The same Phineas in the line of Ezra. Son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the high priest, the chief priest. This is the family line of Ezra the priest and scribe. You see the importance of family in these first six verses. Ezra's lineage went all the way back to Aaron, the high priest. There's a lot on this young man's shoulders. There's a lineage here where he has been left a legacy and been taught to obey God and to be dedicated to his word 
all the way from his ancestor, Aaron the high priest, down through Phineas, who stood for the holiness of God, down through Zadok, who because of his service and obedience is promised a line that will serve the line of David and the ultimate final king of David in the millennial kingdom, we have Ezra. This Ezra, clearly identified by his family lineage, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe. What's a scribe? We think of a scribe as someone who just writes all day long, kind of like a secretary. But a scribe in ancient Near Eastern cultures did more than that. A scribe was a man who had been highly trained, not just in one language, but many languages. Moses was a scribe trained in the household of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He was taught the languages of the ancient Near East. He was able to write and to read in all those languages. He was highly learned, highly skilled in that which he could do and what he was trained in. They're trained in diplomacy. They served as ministers of state. They served as teachers. But Ezra was not a secular scribe. He was a godly, spiritual scribe with the hand of his God upon him. It says he's skilled. That word skilled occurs also, and by the way, when you talk about a scribe, we know that scribes as well as priests were commanded to preach. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10, Moses writes that the priests are to instruct the people in the law of God. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, Malachi the prophet condemns the priests and scribes of his day for not teaching the word of God and obeying the word of God as they ought. And don't forget the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day and the condemnation that came upon them because they did not faithfully teach and obey the word of God. This scribe, this priest, Ezra, was skilled in the law of Moses. That word skilled kind of leaves something to be desired because in the Hebrew, it means swift, fast. And we're not talking about Ezra running a foot race. No, we're talking about a man who is so trained that even when he hears another language that he has been trained in, he can immediately translate and transcribe that as it is being spoken or as it is being read. He is a scribe who is trained so well he can translate into another language as he's recording. And the scribes are required to do that in the ancient Near East. There are artworks, friezes in stone made of such scribes standing in the presence of the king and writing in tablets of, of clay for cuneiform language of the Akkadian language and those standing nearby writing on a piece of parchment in Aramaic as the king may be speaking in Persian. They are recording in other languages, in other scripts. Being skilled in the law of Moses, Ezra did not need to run to the commentaries to teach the word of God. Ezra did not need to stop and say to someone, well, I'll get back to you with an answer about that. He was one who was ready. He was swift with the answer. He was swift with his knowledge because he was trained. 
He was practiced. He spent a lifetime dedicated to the Word of God in such a fashion that it was in him. It's, it's like they used to say of the old Puritans and the old saints that if you cut them, they, their blood was bibline. It looked like Bible because that's all they had. They were saturated with the Word of God. They memorized it. They taught it. They read it. They were immersed in it day and night. Ezra was like that. So he was a swift scribe, skilled Swift in the law of Moses. That same term is used of the poet being skilled in Psalm 45, verse 1. That the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. You see, the law of Moses is what God gave, and that's what made it important. It came from God. It was revelation from God. And the king, Artaxerxes, granted Ezra all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. You see, Ezra's lineage went all the way back to Aaron. Ezra's vocation was as a scribe of God's law. And Ezra's blessing came from the hand of God being on him. That's what made Ezra who he was. We might look at the family and say, well, that's who Ezra was. Look at his family. But it's more than family. It's more than family. Family can't guarantee how one turns out. That's a work of God. Family's important. Family is significant. And out of great godly families come godly men and women to serve him. And Ezra was like that. That's who Ezra was. And we see what Ezra did. He loved the word of God. He dealt with the word of God. He taught the word of God. He wrote the word of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we find out he was involved in one of the first known translations of the word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, after he had arrived in Jerusalem, Ezra gathers all the people together inside the city and he reads to them. He stands and he reads to them all of the law of Moses. And I believe there it's not just talking about the book of Deuteronomy or the Ten Commandments, but it's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all the people stood while he read. It took all morning to read, but they did not move. They did not leave. They stood. And we're told that as he read, he had men scattered throughout all the people who were translating it into a language the people would understand. Why? Because the people had returned from Babylonia. They no longer knew Hebrew, the language of their grandparents. They adopted the language of Babylon, Aramaic, and they brought that back with them. And that's so stuck that even today the Hebrew language in Israel is written in Aramaic letters, not ancient Hebrew letters. So Ezra understood that they would have to have the, the word of God in their language. And he arranged to have men in the audience who were skilled scribes like himself, who could, as he read the word, translate immediately from Hebrew into Aramaic into the ears of all the people gathered there in the city. That's the Ezra we're talking about. That's the type of man he was. That's the type of service he rendered. That's his love of the word of God. That's his skill in the word of God. That's his dedication to the Word of God. And you go back and read Nehemiah chapter 8, and you'll find out something very exciting. Number one, it says they understood. And when they understood, they obeyed. And when they obeyed, God gave them great joy. 
The greatest joy comes from the greatest obedience, which comes from the best understanding of the Word of God. If we can understand the Word of God, we can obey it. If we obey it fully, we will have great joy, and that's where we have those beautiful words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then read Nehemiah chapter 9 and read the prayer of the people because that, they didn't get enough. They didn't get enough. Ezra enthused them with a love of God's word so much they came back to him later and said, hey, let's do it again. Let's keep reading. And that's where they found the instruction of how to observe the Feast of Booths. And we're told there that they observed the Feast of Booths exactly as written in the law of Moses for the first time in one thousand years, not since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, had Israel obeyed the Feast of Booze like they did at that time. Why? Because of the dedication, the skill, and the love of a man of God like Ezra. It's catching. It's catching. It spreads like fire among the people. But it's not Ezra. Let's not mistake ourselves here. It's not dependent upon humans and human flesh. It's the Spirit of God. It's the work of God. And it's because the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Let's give glory and honor where it's due. Let's move next to verses 7 through 10, the impact of obedience. We saw the importance of family, but what about the impact of obedience? Verse 7, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king, for on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. There it is again. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The impact of obedience. Notice he traveled. Four months he traveled. He left Babylonia on April 8th, 458 B.C., and he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th. He traveled through the deserts from Mesopotamia all the way to Jerusalem, walking, perhaps riding part of the way through the hot deserts and hot climate, dry places, through the midst of dangerous peoples and places, and if you go on and you read chapter 8, we're not going to read chapter 8 today, but read chapter 8 maybe this afternoon, because chapter 8, after we've gone through chapter 7, chapter 8 says, now, let's tell you a little bit more about how he prepared for this journey. And one of the things that Ezra knew would happen is that they would face dangers. And he was ashamed, it says, to require of Artaxerxes armed guards to see them through to Jerusalem. Because he believed that if they were going with the hand of God upon him and upon them, they must trust God for protection. And he made good arrangements. He took all that wealth that Artaxerxes sent. I mean, lots and lots, billions of dollars worth of gold and silver and metal. A hundred donkeys worth of, of uh, just the, 
grains that went, not to speak of all the wines and everything else and all the foods and everything that were sent. They went an immense group of over 1,500 people with all the supplies to take care of them for four months and get them to Jerusalem and with supplies to help in the business at hand in the service of God in the temple in Jerusalem. They went with a lot. They would be a target of, of bands of peoples who would seek to destroy their caravan and take all they had. So Ezra assigned and put out all the different goods, spread it out among all the people so that if they lost someone, they only lost a small portion. He was wise. Read chapter 8. You'll see how wise. This man went with a head on his shoulders, he, but he had a faith that was even greater. He said, I will not ask for guards. We trust God himself. And God got them through. He traveled to Jerusalem. He's willing to go a long distance. That's a thousand miles of travel in four months. Now, TJ, you're going to put Karen and your family in a couple of months and head off to the Middle East yourselves. Thousands of miles longer in that journey, but much simpler, and you'll arrive in hours instead of months. But I know that you and your family, if God required it of you, would willingly take much slower routes that might cause you to exercise a lot to get there because you believe that that's where God wants you. And that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. Willing to go anywhere that God uh, commands. Ezra was protected by God's hand upon him. We knew where he went from Babylonia to Jerusalem. We knew how he got there because of the good hand of his God upon him. He was protected by God. But notice here in verse 10, the determination of Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart. He was determined. It was his goal in his life to study the law of the Lord and to do it. Do you notice that? Obedience is better than sacrifice, Samuel said. We are to obey, not just to hear. We are to obey. He set his heart to study it, to do it, and then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Pass it on. Keep it going. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to set our hearts to study the gospel. We are to set our hearts to obey the gospel. And we're to set our hearts to teach the gospel. To give it to others. This is what Ezra did. Let's quickly move to the third point here. And I'm not going to say a lot here because this is a letter. But I want you to hear this letter. It's in the word of God for a reason. It's actually in a different language. You see, the letters in Ezra are written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So you Hebrew students who studied Hebrew in seminary, 
you can't read these letters in the original language unless you take Aramaic. That's another language that you need to learn to read the Word of God. Here it's written in Aramaic. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes, uh, Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, here's the writer, here's the one who is actually not writing, he's speaking, and his scribes like Ezra are copying it down as he speaks. He may be speaking Persian, but they're writing it in Aramaic, and it's the Aramaic copy that's placed here in our Bible. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Wow! Look at the testimony. Look at the standing Ezra has in the eyes of the king of Persia. Do we have that standing in the eyes of the leaders of our governments? That ought to be part of our goal, is to be so imbued with the Word of God, so study of the Word of God, so obedient to the Word of God, so desirous of teaching others the Word of God, that even those in leadership over us would recognize that we are scribes, we are teachers of the law of the God of heaven. And there's no greater calling, no greater appointment than that. It's to that that we are ordaining TJ. Ordained to serve the, the God of heaven and his word. Peace. That's shalom. <laughs> and now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors, the seven top men in his government, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Ezra, take the word of your God and go and use it to evaluate what's happening in Judah and Jerusalem. Wow. Oh, that it would be that way in our country today that leaders would be wanting that to be done above all else. And also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence by bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem." And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, 
make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. That's all the area from south of Turkey all the way to Egypt, west of Mesopotamia. Whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. No dilly-dallying. Get it done. You see, Ezra had to be a man of action. He had to be a man of obedience. He had to be a man of doing to get these things done this fashion. And he had demonstrated that to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes knew that Ezra not only taught the Word of God, he obeyed the Word of God. He did not dilly-dally over it. He did not read it and say, oh, should I do this? What are the reasons I shouldn't do that? Uh, what are the reasons that maybe I shouldn't do it that way because the people around me who aren't believers will just ridicule me? No. Ezra was a man of action and obedience, instant obedience. What he read in the Word of God, he did from the Word of God. He did not delay. He did not excuse. He did not cause reasoning to take place that would delay it in any way or any fashion. He did not hold back. He obeyed fully, not halfway, not half-heartedly, but with his whole, whole mind, his whole soul, his whole body, his whole being. He loved God. He loved His Word. And with all that, he obeyed the Word of God. And he was known for that as high up as the king of all Persia. Oh, that God would give us men like that today and women like that today, young people and old alike, who will walk in the steps of Ezra, the priest, the scribe, who studied the law of the Lord and who did it and who taught it. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, that takes a hundred donkeys. One donkey could carry one core. A hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full. For the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toil on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. They were tax-free. <laughs> Tax-exempt. This is why in America... From the very founding of the colonies, the determination was to keep churches and pastors tax-exempt. They wanted to do what was in the Word of God from even the Old Testament days. And you, Ezra, I find this fascinating. Here's this formal letter from the king of Persia, and he laid out the task and now at the end, he has a very personal note for Ezra himself. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, like Daniel, Ezra had a testimony of being wise. There's that old hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. And Ezra dared to be a Daniel. 
Ezra was like the second Daniel. The Jewish people believe that Ezra was like the second Moses. But as we read the Word of God, he's not just a second Moses, he's a second Daniel. Standing in pagan courts before pagan kings and emperors, standing over entire empires and doing nothing but what God tells them to do, saying nothing other than what God tells them to say, and they are recognized for their wisdom. And that wisdom came from their God. Artaxerxes doesn't say you have your wisdom from my gods. Artaxerxes doesn't say you have your wisdom from the schools and from your teachers. No, he says your wisdom is from God. You, Ezra, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. This is my requirement for you. Don't you dare appoint any official in this government that does not follow the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Now, I don't think he had to tell Ezra to do that. I think Ezra did that all his life. Whoever will not obey the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. There is the implementation of a royal decree. Ezra carried Artaxerxes' letter with him so that anyone who stopped him and asked him, who are you and why are you doing this? He could present the letter from the king of Persia. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, if anyone there in Jerusalem questioned his authority to appoint governors to appoint officers, to appoint the priests in the temple, to establish the rules for the worship of God, the God of heaven in that temple. He had the letter of Artaxerxes as proof and evidence. He was given all authority. And in this letter, from the highest human authority of the time in that region, the highest human authority recognizes that the highest authority above Ezra is the God of heaven. He learned the lesson. Perhaps he read about Nebuchadnezzar and his lesson and how he was driven from his palace and lived as an animal until he learned that the Most High in heaven rules over the kingdoms of man. Artaxerxes recognized that, and the letter declares it. It is God who arranged for Ezra to go. Even God was the one who moved the heart, who molded the heart, of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to send Ezra out. And Ezra was commissioned to teach God's law. And as we send TJ out, we're ordaining him, but we're human beings. His greatest ordination has already taken place. And I'm not talking about back earlier when we quizzed him. His ordination took place when the hand of his God was upon him to appoint him and to assign him and tell him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach the Word of God. God appointed, God chosen, God empowered, God gave wisdom, God gave direction, and God has shown his blessing in TJ and Karen's life and in their family because of TJ and Karen's obedience to the God of heaven. To go wherever he would take them, they went to India. To do whatever he gave them to do. 
and to do it without delay and to do it with all diligence. They didn't need an official letter because they have the Word of God, the best letter of all. Ordained, commissioned to obey. And let's conclude then with those last two verses. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Notice Ezra recognizes it's God who worked on the heart of Artaxerxes. In his imperative of divine blessing here, we see that Ezra praised the Lord, the God of Israel. This is how Ezra gave his thanks. It's God. It's the Lord. Yahweh, those capital letters there on Lord, that's the memorial name of God. It's the high, proper name of God in every way. He's the God he serves. So Ezra is the one who receives that commission and that letter and denotes it as God who extended to me, Ezra says, his steadfast love. That's God's faithful love, the love that will never let go. The love that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter whatever happens to you. He extended me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. And notice what results. Not only does Ezra receive the Lord's steadfast love, but he receives courage. Ezra had the courage to lead leaders. You notice that here? I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. If you noticed earlier in this chapter, we're given a list in verse 7 of some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. In chapter 8, you read about how Ezra chose them and when he chose them and how he chose them and what he commanded them and, and what instructions he gave to them. Ezra was a leader of leaders. TJ is going out there to teach men to serve the Lord. He's going to train pastors. He's going to be training those who will be involved in serving the Lord in the future throughout the Middle East and other places in the world, just as he did in India. This is one of the ultimate examples, one of the ultimate characteristics of a man like Ezra. He has the courage. He has the training. He has the backbone. He has the wisdom from God to lead leaders. Just think about that for a minute. It's not to just lead followers, it's to lead leaders. Just ask Pat Hamlin, as chairman of the Elder Board, how that can sometimes work out. It's like herding cats sometimes, all right? Some of you might be principals of schools or may uh, be heads of businesses. You know what it's like to lead leaders. If you get people, men and women, who have leadership qualities, they know how to lead, they can lead, and they're independent. They're sometimes hard to lead yourself. And you can't micromanage them, you've got to let them lead. You've got to let them do the job that you've asked them to do and appointed them to do. And that's not always easy. 
And it takes courage to lead, especially when you have to tell leaders that they've got to do it a different way than what they think they're going to do it. But Ezra had that courage. And notice he says here for the third time, it was because of the, the hand of the Lord my God that was on me. Well, as we close this, there are some implications. And after the implications, I want to do something special for TJ as we transition into the ordination time. The implications from this text of Scripture in Ezra chapter 7 are, first of all, a godly family produces God's servants. But there are many who didn't grow up in a godly family who God calls to lead and who become leaders. But it's one of the great blessings to watch, especially within the church. Families that stay faithful to the Word of God are those that so often we see their children or their grandchildren are volunteering for service, going overseas in missionary work, or giving the gospel to fellow students or preaching the gospel to their neighbors, willing to go. A godly family is a priceless heritage. Ezra had one like that. How are you and I doing in making certain that at least from us down, we are giving a heritage that will result in an Ezra from our line? Secondly, by the good hand of God, we can do God's will. Every morning I wake up and I realize I'm not strong enough, wise enough to do the things that God asks me to do. I have to depend upon Him. That's why I need to spend time in His Word every day, why I need to spend time in prayer every day. Because nothing I do, I can do of my own accord, of my own wisdom, my own knowledge, my own power. And we must determine that that's the task for the rest of our lives. We'll never stop being students. We need to continue to study the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. Obedience to God's Word takes place best in the company of God's people. Notice Ezra doesn't go back alone. He takes over 1,400 people with him, nearly 1,500. And he chooses leaders. He chooses priests. He chooses singers. Notice he chooses everyone involved in making certain that they can have corporate worship. You note that? Corporate worship. Corporate worship even four months long on the journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Corporate worship in the house of God when they get to Jerusalem. Corporate service for the, for the God of heaven. Ezra can't do it alone. Ezra won't do it alone. In fact, if he does it alone, he's failed to do what he was tasked to do. We depend upon one another. We cannot serve God the way Ezra does without God's people and without the company of God's people. And lastly, the man of God's choosing leads and trains leaders. And that's what TJ is planning to do. Now, I'm not King Artaxerxes. Pastor Adam is not King Artaxerxes. The Board of Elders is not King Artaxerxes. PBC is not King Artaxerxes. But I think we need to give a letter to TJ this morning. And so I've written one, parallel to the letter of Artaxerxes. This is a letter from PBC for TJ. The pastor 
elders and members of Placerita Bible Church, to T.J. Smith, a scribe of the word of the God of heaven and Jesus Christ. We send you forth as a God-ordained servant of the Lord, according to his word, which is in your hand. We send you with our gifts, our prayers, and our love, which we have first of all offered to the God of heaven. Whatever seems good for you to do with these gifts, you may do according to the will of the Lord himself. We request that any and all other servants of Christ and churches of like faith who might either contribute to your ministry or join with you in your ministry to do so with speed and diligence for the glory of the God of heaven. As for you, T.J., according to the wisdom of God that is in your hand, identify, teach, and appoint leaders for the church of Jesus Christ in the land or lands to which you go. Be a leader of leaders for the cause of Christ and His gospel. May the Lord, who put it in your heart to serve Him in this fashion, extend His steadfast love to you and your family before the people of the lands to which you go. Be courageous, for the hand of the Lord our God is upon you to guide and protect you. Let's bow in prayers. Pastor Adam comes. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And we thank you especially today for this word about Ezra, the priest, the scribe of God. And Lord, we thank you for TJ and for Karen and their family. We thank you for their faith, their obedience, their service to you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That service that you ordained him first to do, appointed and sent, and which we as your people affirm in your presence and thank you for their faith and their obedience. And Lord, may each one of us seek to set our hearts like Ezra to study your word and to do it to obey it, and to teach others. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.